Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, let's see. There we go. Here I am. I got to really, uh, I got to swallow the thing. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Doug Powell, and I am chair of the Re- uh, ACB's Rehabilitation Issues Task Force. And welcome to the jointly sponsored session. Um, we're jointly sponsoring with the uh, Special Ed uh, Task Force. And uh, let me give you an overview of the afternoon. Um, we'll be going. The first part of the uh, first part of the session is on WIOA's fifteen uh, percent mandate for pre-employment transition services, and we have a panel for doing that. And that'll go till four o'clock, and then from four to four fifteen, we have a special guest from. Um, Mississippi State University's uh, National Research and Training Center. Her name is Adele, and uh, Adele Crudden, and uh, she'll be telling us what uh, they're up to. They always have some good research that's useful for uh, folks who are involved with uh, the blindness community and, and uh, rehabilitation. So we'll be interested in, in that. And then um, from 4.15 to 5.30, um, the Special Ed Task Force will be doing a panel on the collaboration between the public schools and the residential blind schools and how they are levering each other to provide great services for uh, blind students in Missouri uh, and elsewhere, by the way. Um, So, and... uh, Debbie Grubb will be, uh, she's the chair of the special ed task force and she'll sort of be taking over that second half. Um, Rather than passing the microphone around and trying to get everybody to introduce themselves, um, we have a lot to cover. So what I'd prefer to do, if you don't mind, is uh, ask uh, several categories of uh, what, what would bring you here and uh, you can clap to tell us what your, um, what your uh, interest is, you know, where you're coming from. So uh, let's do first um, the, um, the rehab task force and the special ed task force members. Can you clap? Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. And thanks for all of your work all year, all year round. Um, now, how about um, rehab professionals? And I'll break that down by saying, first of all, um, adult rehab folks. Is there anybody? Great. And then uh, uh, TVIs, people who, uh, teachers who teach visually impaired people in the schools. All right, great. Um, how about just ACB advocates? All right, good. And any other categories that I missed that we may have uh, represented here? Doesn't sound like it. Okay, great. Um, so, oh, there, there may be some people who have, uh, are here uh, getting uh, continuing education credits. So I'm supposed to give you a code at the beginning, and then uh, Debbie will give you another code at the end to show that you came. So the code for the beginning is 3C755. 3C755. Okay. Um, 
So, yeah, so WIOA, which passed several years ago, mandated for the first time that 15% of uh, rehab funding be allocated for pre-employment transition services. Um, and so uh, a lot of agencies around the country uh, are, have been, and it still are, I think, <laughs> from what I hear, scrambling around to figure out what that means and how to uh, do it and, and how to set up programs and how to run programs and, and figure out what works and what doesn't work to uh, prepare students for post-12th uh, grade um, either uh, uh, work experiences or, um, or, or going to college and then, and then to work. Um, we have, um, so, the, and the, the, uh, what they're supposed to cover with this 15% funding is, uh, w- the first thing is uh, job counseling, job exploration uh, counseling, also work-based learning experiences, Counseling on uh, enrollment in special transition or uh, post-secondary um, education, further education. Workplace uh, readiness uh, for uh, including uh, social skills and um, daily living. And self-advocacy. So those are the... Those are the kind of those are the um, uh, those are the broad strokes of what pe- what people are supposed to be spending their money and, and uh, building programs to um, to help teach uh, students so that they can successfully uh, transition to work. Um, what I'd like that we have three panelists here today who are going to be talking from different viewpoints on how pr- their program is, is working and, and, uh, and those kinds of things, and I have some questions to ask them. So um, I'm going to start with Teresa Kane, who is with us through Zoom. Uh, she's in Massachusetts and uh, cu- coming to us over the phone. And um, Teresa, if you would, could, could uh, explain a little bit about the Polis Center um, what the relationship is to the rehab agency, and um, a little bit about you know an overview of the program for you know for a few minutes. Yeah. Sure, thank you, and thank you for having me, and thank you for accommodating me uh, from a distance here. Um, so, the Polis Center for Social and Economic Development has uh, supported people with a range of disabilities since 1979. Uh, both we had residential services, we do some international development work, and we, uh, over the last 10 years or so, have shifted our focus from residential to employment. So we always did some employment and vocational work over the last 10 years or so. We strategically decided in Massachusetts that's where we wanted to focus our, our energy. And uh, several years ago, we started to work with the Mass Commission for the Blind, with a program called Project Search, which some people might be familiar with. It's a program for transition age um, youth with developmental disabilities. But several years ago, Mass Commission for the Blind uh, adapted it for adults, unemployed adults. So 
that was our first uh, introduction to MCB. And then a couple of years ago, they asked us if we'd be interested in doing um, a program for this transition age uh, youth who have uh, who or their their consumers from MCB. And uh, so the program that we do, we call it uh, it's called the Envision Success Program Project, uh, and we title um, shorten it to ESP, thinking about it's a way for to help students think about their future. Uh, and it's not just ESP, that, it, that, that there are things you can do so that it, they can make informed choices about what kinds of uh, career direction they want to head. So we, we, really, we talk about it in terms of career exploration to experience. And it's a pretty unique program, I think. There is no classroom. There is no set place that we meet. We take tours of businesses. We travel around to different types of businesses. Uh, any professional offices, manufacturing, healthcare, small businesses, self-employed, a range of different types of options that uh, students can have. And then we also have speakers who do different professions to talk about the pros and cons of different um, job choices, how they got there, what type of education they needed, and what's, what, where our classroom is, which I think is pretty unique and really has worked out, I think, really well is that after they do the tour or they go listen to the speaker, the speakers typically will come with us as well, but the staff and the volunteers and the participants and the speakers all go to dinner or lunch, depending on what time of day it is. And then they have an informal discussion about what they learn, whether this is a career path they may want to go, uh, what else, where else they might want to go to continue exploring it. And that's where we introduced the whole peer support and peer mentoring. And that really evolved naturally and organically. And we were really happy to see how supportive the students have been of one another in those informal settings. Uh, so, uh, so again, in a nutshell, what our program does is we bring students on business tours uh, based on their interests, but also what we're trying to do is to expand their initial thinking to uh, see what other options are out there. And I don't know if people are familiar. I, I remember years ago, I worked with a, a woman who was in her 40s, I think, and I asked her what she wanted to do for a career, and she said she wanted to wash pots and pans. And I said, really, that's an interesting career choice. And she, she, it was clear that was the only job she had ever had. So she, that's why that's what she thought that was her option. So one of our main goals is to expand options for people so that they see what they could do. We also have speakers. We have training over the summer. We have training programs on workplace readiness. Uh, and actually, we have a great speaker this summer who's going to talk about uh, public speaking and help students with their speaking skills. Uh, we do internships in the summer. It's both a summer and an after-school program. They do internships and get job experience in the field that, they, that they've expressed some interest in. Um, and then again, the peer support comes from both the, uh, their interaction as students, but also we do have them partner with our adult program. They just uh, this week went to Boston and toured Mass Pioneer, which is where the uh, adult um, interns are working. And that gives them another level of peer support with some adults um, who are also doing their job search, maybe at different stages of their life. Great. I do have a couple of examples, but I don't want to take up too much of the time. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, it, it, some of it may come out in future in the in the questions that I'm going to ask. 
Um, okay, great. Thank you. Um, now we're going to turn to uh, Samantha Scott, who is a children's specialist with the Missouri Department of Blind Services. So I've got a, I've got a, there you go. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me today to talk about our services. Uh, as Doug said, I am a children's specialist with Rehabilitation Services for the Blind through the state of Missouri. And uh, we spend our pre-employment transition service fundings through WIOA in a variety of different ways. Um, we look at the you know five core areas, and our in-house staff does provide a lot of the training as far as um, career exploration, uh, workplace readiness training, looking at um, instruction in self-advocacy, and also about enrollment opportunities. But we've also been um, bringing in and creating different programs for them to uh, get as prepared to work or be as independent as possible, and also to get that first ex hands-on experience um, in some type of work environment, whether that's volunteering, whether that's um, you know part-time or full-time employment, um, or over the summer, whatever that might be. So we um, provide opportunities for students to attend a variety of uh, work readiness programs throughout the summer, um, such as SOAR, and I don't know if Kevin might talk about that in a little bit, um, or we also have the STEP program, which is in the Kansas City area. So really depending on what part of the region our students are based in, um, we create a plan that's individualized to them. And we also bring in programs like Blind and Socially Savvy to help students develop those soft skills, um, those social skills, how to network, and pre be prepared to be confident and successful as they go out into the world to uh, look for employment, but then also continue their career and hopefully maintain a positive one that continues for a long time. And so as the children's specialist, what I do is I start in the schools. I attend a lot of individualized education program meetings uh, to help the parents and families advocate and really see where the student is at and meet them there and then see how we can develop those skills working within our agency, collaborating with other agencies across the state, um, other education providers, and also uh, employers as well. Great. And could you pass the mic to uh, Kevin Hollinger, who is the SOAR director. <laughs> and we were having fun the other day. Um, uh, it's S-O-A-R, but I, he just got finished with a, a, a program, a summer program. And so I asked him if he was S-O-R-E as well. So <laughs> and he said yes. So Kevin is the director of SOAR. He's also a uh, teacher for the visually impaired in the schools. And uh, he works uh, at, out of the Lighthouse St. Louis. So, Kevin? Great. Thank you, guys. Welcome to the sauna. I mean, <laughs> St. Louis. <laughs> Everybody's still sweating. So, yeah, my name is Kevin Hollinger. I've been the director of the SOAR program um, for 13 years now. It used to be called STEP. We changed the name to SOAR. The acronym stands for the Summer Orientation and Mobility and Adapted Living Resource Program. It's a mouthful. That's why we say SOAR. Um, our program is very unique. Um, we are very interested in transition planning, but in our experience um, within the school systems and beyond, we're finding out that the kids are lacking many of the skills that are precursors to employment. So our program is set up to provide one-on-one -on -one instruction in a various um, domains of instruction. We have a careers domain, cooking, self-care, etiquette, money management, clothing management, home maintenance, and orientation and mobility. 
So we bring in 12 kids every summer. They cycle through these programs, and they receive one-on-one instruction. Again, our thinking is that um, you can expose kids to a whole bunch of jobs, but if they don't have the hygiene skills needed to seek, gain, and maintain employment, it does no good. If they come in and they can't cut their own fingernails or the young ladies uh, have uh, a hard time putting on makeup and doing their hair without their mom, they're not going to be able to seek, gain, or maintain employment. So we really focus on skill acquisition, mastery, and generalization. We have a real focus on orientation mobility. Most of the kids that come, Missouri is a very rural state, uh, but a lot of the kids that come to us are from rural communities. They might have one blinking yellow stoplight, and then they get here to the big, bad St. Louis, and they figure out it's actually a great place to be with the public transit, APS signals, sidewalks, (laughs) no cows, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, So we have lessons on Uber, non-driver education, map making. We do a lot of night lessons. Uh, We have a lot of residential programming. We have a sex ed and dating seminar, a sports education camp, a lot of volunteerism. And then we bring in just a host of special guests. So we bring in ACB, NFB, IRA, Seeing Eye. Uh, We have yoga three nights. We have self-defense three nights. So again, our, our goal is to help expose the kids to career readiness, but through skill acquisition. Uh, that's, again, our, our big goal. It's outcome-based. We provide initial assessment. We provide a written report for every domain of instruction to the family so they could pass it on to the school district uh, through a comprehensive report. And the idea is if we build up all those other skill areas, they will then, therefore, be able to look into employment and career readiness. Um, so it's very much a precursor to WIOA. We're very unique. Uh, we go all over the country presenting on our program, uh, trying to get people to do the same thing. So we're working hard with that. And from there, we'll turn it back to Doug. Cool. Um, how did you establish uh, teachable uh, uh, skill sets for, for these objectives? Um, did, you know, how much did you work with business, uh, parents and, and kids, uh, and the schools in developing the, the actual programs and the skills that, that uh, you wanted to offer to the students. Let's, as long as Kevin's still got the mic, why don't we start with Kevin? Sure. So we collaborate a lot with the families, um, the teachers, the visually impaired, rehab specialists, anybody who's willing to talk to us before the kids get there. But basically, we pull from a lot of different curriculums. For example, the Texas uh, School for the Blind Independent Living Curriculum, here, here. Uh, We use the avals kit, um, but really it is completely student-directed. We try to bring every kid in, figure out where they are, what we can do with them in three weeks just to push them forward. So it's very individualized. Um, Again, it's outcome-based, meaning what do you want to learn, how did you do, and what needs to happen next. Um, But again, we get a lot of buy-in from the families and the participants themselves. I forgot to mention the students that come to us, they're between the ages of 16 and 21. So they have a pretty good idea of where their skill sets are, at least they think they do. Uh, Their definition of laundry is not quite our definition of laundry. (laughs) So by the end of the three weeks, you know, they're sorting their clothes, bringing it down a dorm, you know, full service, get it back upstairs, um, folded, hung, put away, labeled, managed, that kind of a thing. Um, So we pull from a lot of resources. We have a a host of experts um, working on our team. We employ about 23 people to put this program on in three weeks. So it really depends on the program um, that we're talking about, and it is really individualized to what 
the student or client needs. Uh, I think it really starts with a conversation at the school and, you know, at that IEP meeting, talking with students, talking with parents, talking with the uh, TVIs or the orientation and mobility specialists and really seeing where the student is at. We do have a newer program called our work-based learning experience where we're really trying to help students get that hands-on work experience um, using community resource providers to give that student a chance to learn those soft skills, employability skills within a classroom setting, but then also have a supported work environment where they go out and they do a job for um, 16 weeks or maybe even longer, really, once again, depending on the particular situation, and it's in an area that they're interested in. So, you know, maybe they've only ever done dishes working in a school environment. It gives them a chance to try something that they're interested in and hopefully are considering as a career for the future. So um, it is really a team collaboration, and we are here to support uh, the success of the student by working together as a team. Great. uh, Teresa? Yeah, um, actually, being last here, I think I'm just going to echo a lot of what what each person said. Uh, Our program, too, is very person-centered and uh, driven by uh, initial interviews with the students and their parents and MCB and their TVIs or whoever uh, knows them well in the beginning to find out what their skills, their interests, uh, you know, what their challenges are right from the beginning. And um, then that helps us identify what tours we might take that they'd be interested in, what mentors we can introduce them to, what kinds of uh, internships they may be suited for. Uh, but also from the collaboration side, I would just echo that, that uh, really MCB knows it was, you know, this is a small community and, and, and our MCB um, uh, VR counselors are just terrific. They know, they know the students, they introduce us to what would be uh, helpful for them. Um, we do work with the businesses, so if they're interested in a certain topic, then we work with the business leaders to see what might they need to learn. Uh, and then we also um, we work with established programs that have curriculum. So in addition to the career exploration, as I said, this summer, they will go for eight weeks to a workplace readiness program that was already designed for this age group uh, that they will participate in. And um, that the uh, public speaking program was already established. Uh, but also, we are lucky in Massachusetts, and I, I'm not familiar with other states and if they're as rich as we are, but we have a lot of resources here between MCB and the, the school resources, but also we have Carroll Center for the Blind and Perkins School for the Blind, and they both teach a lot of the uh, skills, the, like the independent living skills and the skills that were spoken about, like the hygiene and the, uh, the independent living. So a lot of the students have, have do those programs in, in, in parallel to um, this career exploration program. So it's a lot of collaboration, and it is very person-centered depending on what the students need. Great. Um, I, I know it's, uh, I, I know it's uh, rehab and not, not the schools. How much, how much of these programs for you know, getting kids ready to work, uh, students specifically, um, uh, how much of this work is being done by the school or during the school day? Um, you know, is there any, uh, how, how much collaboration is there, you know, for, for this work uh, in the schools themselves? Anybody? Samantha, you got the mic? So this is Kevin. Oh, okay. 
in the schools, I've been working in the public school system for 20 years now um, in various roles. And I will tell you that a lot of school districts want to try to address transition and transition programming, but they often just don't know where to start. I come, my school district is about 35 miles west of here. We have more students in our school district than the School for the Blind does um, in the state. So um, I will tell you that we have a very large focus on it. We work very, very closely with our rehab counselor um, who tries to attend every meeting. Um, My experience though is a consultant to a lot of rural districts in the little free time I have People just don't know what to do. They, they think every child with a visual impairment who is, quote, academic, which is a term you often hear, meaning they show potential, you know, um, they're so focused on college that oftentimes they, they pass by just going into employment. Um, yeah, I saw a hand clap. Thank you. I agree. Um, so I think it's really um, to educate the parents and the schools are trying to educate the families on how to advocate for their child, what resources are out there, if they're going to be eligible with the Missouri Rehab Services for the Blind, what that assessment looks like, um, and then what available resources there are post, post-secondary. I, my experience, too, is the kids get a lot in the school systems in terms of technology. I mean, these kids are walking around with everything. Um, but the problem is, again, they, they, they can't walk around because they don't have any mobility skills, and they get very little mobility instruction. So I think the schools are trying, but we're still lacking the needed professionals um, from a shortage standpoint of people really knowing what they're doing. So I'm hoping that the state will continue to seek and fund the blind, blindness skill specialists. We have a Missouri Blind Task Force. Uh, and I think if we pull all of our resources together to better educate folks, we're going to have a better outcome. Okay, great. Teresa, how about that? How about uh, in Massachusetts? Are, are, are you guys working with the schools? Are they, are they doing some of the work? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think we've had a lot of um, uh, cases where we have been collaborative. The TVIs have been um, part of the team once they start, once people realize that um, the students are going through our program, um, they become part of our resource team to help think about how to best support them. Our program might be unique in that uh, they attend throughout the school year after school and then they do summer internships. And they may, some may not do the whole summer internship or some may skip pieces of it, but we have, we have, have the opportunity to work with them over a longer period of time. And depending on, again, the interest or the need, one example I can think of is there's a student really interested in filmmaking. And so we took some tours of cable TV stations, then we went to the Channel 5 news station, our, our major station here in Boston, uh, and then, so for our program, he did an internship over the summer, worked with a videographer, and made a film with one of the other students who was also interested in the filmmaking. And then, in collaboration and discussion with the teachers at his school, he then did a film camp, and then over the school year, he did a film class where he got another internship uh, experience after school that we uh, didn't drive, the school did, but we worked in concert with them to help make that happen. And now he, in going into this summer, is going to, he took some classes in uh, video from the local TV, um, access, table, uh, access TV, and now this summer he'll be working there for the summer. So I think that's an example of um, when we can, we try to collaborate with schools as much as possible. And that's, a, that's the best case scenario uh, when it works out as well as that particular case did. Great. Samantha, you have anything to add? 
I was just going to add that um, as a children's specialist, part of what I do, and I keep going back to the IEP meetings, um, but that's just a chance for everyone to come to the table and just to have a realistic ex um, discussion of, you know, where the student is at, how much progress they've made throughout the, the years. And I have, um, I'm fortunate enough to work with children um, really from whenever their case starts, which may be as early as birth or, you know, not too far away after that, all the way up until, you know, when they're getting ready to graduate from high school. So I get to uh, be with children for quite a many years and see them really grow and learn, uh, which is one of the things that I love about my job. But I think that there's a really great chance to collaborate with schools, you know, from early childhood to high school, uh, whether that's, you know, helping them figure out how to accommodate a cooking or a home ec class, whether that's figuring out, you know, what role and uh, how assistive technology can really come into play into all facets of the school um, to see what they're taking as far as uh, personal finance or careers class and how we can support that and work with the, the TVIs. Um, and so it really just goes back to that collaboration piece of how we can um, support those work readiness skills to help support the employability piece as well. Great. Um, so... Uh I think I, I think I want to sort of approach the next question from two levels. One is, um, how are you measuring success for your program, or, or how will you if, if it's a fairly fairly new program? Um, you know, are you getting feedback from students, feedback from parents, and feedback from employers? This is Kevin. Mike's back to me. Great. Uh, so when the kids apply, they have to complete a self-assessment, the parent has to complete an assessment, and a professional TVI, rehab counselor, or somebody else. And we ask them uh, to rate themselves if um, something's not applicable, I've never tried, I need a lot of help, I need a little help, or I'm completely independent. So that's at the time of the application, which is usually between um, December and February. Then we repeat that at, on the first day of our program, and then we repeat it again at the end of the program, and we repeat it one more time uh, when we write, send them their six-month letter. So what we do is we try to capture how the kids move between the categories of I've never tried something all the way to I feel I'm completely independent. Um, and we just try to collect data that way, again, because it's outcome-driven. Um, it's completely individualized, so we don't have any, like, real strong empirical research-based stuff, but it's just self-perception, and sometimes that's what counts the most. Um, but also when parents uh, have an opportunity to see, wow, I really rated them low, but they're actually high and vice versa. So we try to help the families identify um, a more realistic approach to skill acquisition and building. Uh, and again, I mentioned earlier that we provide a comprehensive report um, that includes a lot of student self-statements. Our program doesn't want to recommend to a school district halfway across the state, you should do this. Uh, but when there's a kid quoted that says, I want more nighttime orientation and mobility, or I would like an induction cooktop because I don't like gas or the stove in general, um, that's very powerful coming from the students. So we just try to equip, equip the kids with the opportunity to advocate for themselves. Teresa? Yeah, well, so I should mention that last year was our pilot year. So that uh, was yeah. our first year that we did the program last year. So we're into our uh, year two. Uh, in our first year, though, what we found is that we just did uh, evaluations ongoing and, and they came really after each tour, after each experience. But we would get feedback from the employers 
when they did do a when they did do internships or we had a couple of the students who actually got jobs and what they got performance reviews um, we actually have a performance review form that we try to use with the intern internships uh, so we get feedback from the employers uh, the students actually do homework at the end of each of their experiences their tours to talk about what they learned and what their thoughts are so we're able to judge a little bit about you know what how successful was that tour to, dependent on um, what they were able to gain from it. Uh, we also get feedback from our partners. We do a monthly call with our NCB partners to talk about what types of uh, growth or change that they see in the students as they go forward. And uh, at the year, at the end of our first year, we did a year-end celebration where we brought all the parties together, the volunteers, the students, the parents, the um, partners, uh, the staff. And it was a really exciting um exciting time where we were able to show um, really the accomplishments of each student and all of the different experiences that we had had highlighted really what the year had done. And I, I think people in that audience were really, um, myself included, and I had been part of the whole thing throughout the year, but to see it all come together at the end of the year and just see how much the students had learned and grown and uh, the students read essays and they showed their films that they had done. And one student in particular, he had grown over to, over the time that he was with us from really a, a person who was in his bedroom not willing to come out and really uh, interact with the world. He was into his computers. He had a college experience. He asked, to, he asked first he said he wouldn't do it, but then he said, can I get up and, and talk about my internship and what I learned from it? And now he just got himself into a really really good job at a major um, computer company here in Massachusetts at a really good wage. So that, for me, is the measure of success. Examples like that. You bet. And that was going to be my other question, my next question in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, measuring success. Uh, I think I heard in a session, uh, can't remember what day it was. Um, it's already running together. 65% um, of the jobs... Uh, that current day kindergartners will have are not even we don't even know what they are yet those jobs so I think you know it, it, I you know it in moving from 70 percent unemployment to a situation that I think WIOA was was intended to to foster was you know uh employers clamoring to get blind people to work because they are so well prepared with the skills that are needed um do we know what those are do we you know are we are we is are we working from that side you know is that is that in within the scope of your programs and and how is that going Don't everybody jump in at once. <laughs> Sorry, I was just figuring out if Kevin wanted to go first, if he wanted to follow the same order. Uh, well, it, you know, we help sponsor or help provide the opportunities for uh, youth, pre-employment transition youth, to do these different programs. Um, I think we really measure success in a variety of ways. Um, you know, we're, of course, quarterly report, reporting on how we're spending those WIOA funds, but then we're also looking at the reports that we, excuse me, the reports that we get from the different programs and, kind of like what was said earlier, just the 
um, outward observations of talking to the students and the parents and the families, talking to the students themselves and just seeing you know, how much more confident they am, how much more excited they are to go out and do whatever's next, whether that's go to college, whether that's to continue the same type of work experience they had, or you know, maybe they found out that they want to do something totally different or some type of career that may not be um, out there yet, but is a, a big and upcoming one, um, and just have the confidence to keep on the same path and continue uh, their journey in employment. Great. This is Kevin. So I agree with what you said in trying to get these kids into the programs. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of TVIs, O&Ms, AT people um, in the school systems are doing is just trying to get the kids to sign up for a summer program, even in their home district. You know, so many schools have reading programs and literacy programs and um, STEM programs, right? Because everybody knows STEM is so important nowadays. Um, so just getting kids to participate and step outside their box is a first step. Again, because if they don't get exposure to something that is possible, um, they don't have a lot of that motivation. So I think as we work through like the Missouri Connections program, I'm not sure if we'll talk about that. Um, the AFB Career Connect series is another a wonderful tool that these young kiddos uh, can have access and exposure to to look at work-based learning, talk to somebody in the profession, find out what was their journey like, um, was it going to take, do I need a degree, can I live at home? You know, that's one of the biggest questions. So, can I still live at home when I do that? No, get out. Your parents want a date, you know? Yeah, really. Uh, <laughs> right? I see a lot of head shaking. So, um, again, I think is in Missouri here, there are a number of programs that are available for kids, even college-based programs. You know, you've got Thrive and Succeed and some of these other ones. But, again, they don't really have the training or the expertise to work with kids that have a visual impairment. And I'm not just talking about blindness, even kids that, you know, folks that have a low vision uh, or maybe even progressive vision loss. People have great hearts, they just don't know what to do. So uh, again, I think part of it is we have to continue to recognize the shortage of professionals available to help these kids and to help these families. And this is Sam again, I just wanted to add something um, that popped in my head as I was uh, listening to Kevin is something that I think a lot of our vision teachers in the state of Missouri uh, try to do their best and do a great job is at really um, helping to encourage and support the teaching of the expanded core curriculum. So to teach those nine major areas to help depend to um, develop those independent skills, whether that's cooking or you know self advocacy, assistive technology, whatever it might be. Um, throughout the school year and then to help the student figure out how can I continue that over the summer, whether that's through a summer program or just independent practice at home or whatever that might look like. Great. Teresa, you want to jump in? Yeah, I would say uh, a, a little, um, as you asked the questions, I, I was thinking about that is one of the directions that we, we take the uh, students after they explore a job or career that they have expressed interest in, uh, sometimes their homework is to then look up on ONET or through the career system, career center, the one-stop career center, to find out what, what are the uh, job projections for that job. And if I were to, that, that's also one of the questions that we ask the employers when we're doing the tours. How, where is this job headed? You know, how many people are, how in demand is this job? And uh, we work, I happen to um, be the vice chair of the um, North Central Massachusetts Workforce Investment Board. So we that that workforce board system, which is funded through EOA as well, 
is tasked with identifying what are the what are the key jobs in this region. So uh, between the North Central and the Central Mass, anyway, we have a really good idea that uh, the, the jobs that we're introducing them to are jobs that are in demand. Um, but it's interesting that one of the things that we learned over the year is when I first uh, put the proposal together, the program together, that was my thought, is that we would introduce kids to in-demand jobs in the healthcare industry, in the manufacturing, those are two of the key areas of employment in Massachusetts. And then I thought I would match that with the strong interest inventory, which they take so that they can get a window into their own interests. And so one of my learnings was those two key, those components are really key, but the most important piece is really to start where they are and to start with the person, the person centered and really understand what their interests are and then try to help them fit that into uh, possible careers. So, for example, we have one student who uh, last year she did a video as well. Um, she did, but she was also interested in marketing and with her sister. So they actually did a marketing project because marketing, you know, you can take that interest in filmmaking and not just make YouTube videos, but you could get into marketing. And this summer she's doing an internship with a professional photography studio that's going to help her understand how she could apply that skill, but also to mentor her to understand that she probably is going to have to have another job to pay the bills before she can <laughs> make a living as a professional photographer. So um, I, I think that's a really critical question um, because we don't really want to steer um, students into a profession that there are no, where there are no jobs, at least in the region where they live. Very good. Okay, the next question I have for you is, are there gaps in what you're able to offer? You know, do you feel hamstrung at all by the uh, WIOA um, um, regulations that we can, uh, you know, most of us in the room here are ACB members and potential advocates, and uh, uh, are, there, are there gaps in what you're able to offer that we can help advocate to, to relieve the gaps? I think uh, Kevin already, this is Sam again, Kevin already kind of touched on the fact that, you know, our state of Missouri, there are lots of gaps in very rural areas where there may only be a few individuals or one individual that's visually impaired or blind, and their access to uh, TVIs and other resources may not be the same as someone who lives in a more urban area. And so I think just, um, you, you, I think a technology is important in being able to have access to those resources and maybe, you know, you might not physically be able to get to a resource, but just from what you can get from online or um, through the mail or whatever that might be. And I think just the communication and the education piece is really important to continue that and work with all of the players involved to uh, work together to find what tools and programs are going to be the best for the needs of that particular student. This is Kevin. Another gap we've identified in our program is a, a tremendous barrier is transportation. Um, yeah. You know, again, I, I live. Have <laughs> no, everybody's head perked up with that one? Um, you know, it was great when I walked in uh, to the convention today. I saw a number of folks getting off the trolley. You know, and, and that works great. Uh, but I live 35 miles west of here, and we don't have public transportation. And like I mentioned, we have you know 41 kids in my school district. 
Um, so I think a tremendous barrier we have is transportation. Um, the kids think Uber is the answer for everything, and Uber can be great. We had some great experiences this summer with it, even when a kid left a very expensive uh, piece of technology, it was returned, um, you know, that kind of thing. But the problem is when you're, you know, initially starting out in employment, maybe making $12, $14 an hour, that's an expensive ride to and from work. Um, we have a number of kids that wanted to go to the community college they're from a single parent family, they can't get transportation, but due to rules and regulations based on transportation, they couldn't get to school. Uh, and it was too far to walk. So I think transportation is another barrier we haven't spoken too much about. And also um, ADA rights and responsibilities is something we refer to. Um, a lot of kids and families don't know what to ask for. They don't understand the process for um, filing a complaint. And they also think a complaint is just this awful thing. Um, but sometimes that's what you have to do to get things done. So I think if we can equip our young people to understand and their families to understand what can I ask for as a reasonable accommodation? What, what does that mean anyway? What is reasonable? How is that defined? Uh, when they do go off to school, um, I know Sam and some of our colleagues were talking about accessibility offices at the universities and how some are significantly better than others, but what happens when that doesn't work out? So I think those two things, if we can tackle transportation and then also equipping these young folks with what are their rights uh, and what can they um, ask for and demand would, would also shake up the landscape a little bit. Would that, uh, would that come under the self-advocacy piece? Absolutely. Yeah. Teresa, anything? Any yeah, I, I would absolutely echo what Kevin said. Uh, I would say for this program, the biggest barrier has been transportation. And the, I think part of your question was the regulations, uh, the wheel of regulations around not wanting to pay for the transportation. Um, and our program is unique in that we are not, it's not that they are at a school setting. They come from different towns. Uh, and we try to bring them to different towns, to different businesses. So we, we came up with a solution that I think has actually worked quite well. We uh, solicit and train volunteers um, who can both drive students and help them. Uh, we train them with sighted guide. MCB does training for them. And um, the double the, the, um, benefit to that, in addition to solving the transportation issue, because we have, again, students coming from all directions and timing of, you know, it's after school, so we have to try to get to businesses while they're open. Um, so that has actually been a, a pretty good solution because then the drivers, the volunteers, can also help process what was learned from the tour, et cetera. But that took us a while to, to figure that out. How, how will we possibly get students from A to B when it changes all the time where A and B is? And then the fact that in the regulation we're not supposed to be paying for transportation, it's, it's just really um, in some ways mind-boggling that uh, how, how can we get them from here to there if we're not supposed to pay for it. <laughs> but we, we have solved it with the, with the idea of using the volunteers, which has worked while we have really good volunteers. Great. Uh, by the way, um for around here, certainly uh, it seems like uh, Chris Gray, who's the executive director of the Missouri Council of the Blind, uh, and, and Denny Huff, who's the president, I'm sure that they've got, they, they've got people with a lot of expertise on ADA uh, and, and rights and responsibilities that um, you could tap as a resource. 
um, you know, as you're going along. Uh, and I'm sure the uh, Bay State Council uh, in, in Massachusetts would, would be more than happy to help out with that as well. Um, at, you know, and, and the, the, um, obviously the ACB affiliates all around the country for those who are not, <laughs> not necessarily in those two states. Um, is there anything else that we can do as advocates to help you? This is my last question, then I'll open it up to the, to the audience if, if they've got questions. Um, is there anything else that we as advocates can do to help you, support you in, in your programs? Teresa, you want to go first? Uh, I think um, what I, I had searched for in the beginning, and I think there are some really good resources out there, but I'd love to see more is uh, to help students not only think, so we're helping them think about the whole um, wide range of career options, but there is the need to really look for role models who are visually impaired and jobs that people are doing successfully and it would be great to have more of that. Um, I don't know where that can be, but, um, you know, just more so that they can really explore some of the, um, uh, some people, and we try to do that. We have, um, we have college, we do college tours and we uh, go out of our way to find blind students who can talk about their experience uh, in that school. But um, I, I think that that would be just, from a resource perspective, uh, I'm not sure it's advocacy as much as just resources, to just really have um, more and more people be mentors and to talk about their experiences so that students can um, see themselves in, in uh, those positions. Good point. Yeah, I, I encourage you guys to, if you, have, if you have a need for mentors, to reach out to the ACB affiliates, uh, I'm sure they would be more than happy. I know uh, when I was on the State Rehab Council in Virginia, um, we tried a mentoring program before all of this uh, pre-employment transition service stuff came along, and we had plenty of mentors but not enough mentees. But if we have people feeding into this system from the, from the programs that you guys are running, then we, you know, we may have a better shot at... Um, at developing those uh, those relationships and, uh, than than we used to have. Questions from the audience and Kevin, can I can I impose on you to uh, to run the mic to people who who are requested? Sure. Thank you. I'm on my way. Good afternoon. Uh, this is uh, Ray Campbell uh, here. Um, I get to the my, this question is directed to the Missouri folks, and that would be: um, With um, is your program? Do you work strictly with the students from Missouri, or because uh, the Illinois state line is so close here, do you get people or work with the uh, Rehabilitation Bureau of Blind Services in the state of Illinois to bring? folks into the program from uh, across the state line or not? This is Kevin. Well, uh, our program focuses on students from Missouri. Um, they kind of get first dibs and preference. Um, however, every year for the last three years, we've had at least two students from Illinois. And a couple years in a row, we had a couple kids from Kansas come over. Um, we try to identify the kids that need to come to the program the most through a competitive application process. Um, so it's not just if you apply, you're in. It's actually competitive, and we have 12 spots. So we try to find 
12 kids, um, you know, who are in most need. Sam? I can just kind of, well, I guess I'll. Yeah, here. Yeah. We, we have an L. Okay. We have an ALD. All right, sorry about that. Um, for our agency, we focus on clients that are in the Missouri area. Um, you know, if they are in Illinois, Kansas, you know, with the borders being so close, um, really the only, we can help be a resource, but as far as providing direct, you know, helping to collaborate direct services is really just focusing on the residents of Missouri for our program. And Teresa, do you have, uh, do you have folks from out of state coming in for your program? No, they're all Massachusetts based. Great. Other questions from the audience? Yes, this is Ben Wright from Kentucky. Um, I know in some of the adult vocational evaluations, they have some psychological testing that um, the vocational evaluator might do, like the MMPI and personality tests and that uh, college adjustment scales. I didn't know if you guys did that with the kids in your program. Not for me. Teresa, yes, no? Uh, yes, yeah, I didn't know whether I should speak yet. Uh, we, uh, the only assessment tool that we use is the uh, strong interest inventory to help them now through, narrow down to what some of the possible career areas they might want to focus. Sam, do you have anything to add? No. Okay. Sam has nothing to add. Anybody, so I hope that answers your question. <laughs> um, Hi. Hi, this is Judy Jackson, and um, I'm um, listening to all of this with, with great fascination. I have um, a couple of questions and, and, and a comment. <clears throat> One of the, the first question that I have, um, I think, Kevin, it was you um, we're talking about, and I think, Sam, you work together with Kevin, I think. Is that, do I understand that right? You guys share a program? Um, so I work through the rehab services for the blind through the state of Missouri, um, but we help district. support and kind of publicize that the SOAR program is out there. Got it. So, so one of the things that um, we did in Texas for um, a long time was we put on a school to work weekend where we worked with both parents and families and we looked at several areas, all that dealt, you know, we, we sort of, um, I guess for lack of a better way, I guess you could say it was a spinoff of the ECC that AFB came up with the expanded core curriculum. But we, we assessed the parent while the students were doing some other things at, at the weekend. And then we assessed the student. Um, and as you might imagine, those things were, the, those assessments came out quite differently. <laughs> as to what the parents thought the students' capabilities were and what the students thought their capabilities were. Um, but what we did with that at the end of the weekend was to develop an action plan. So um, little Debbie's going off to, high, to college um, this next year, but little Debbie has never had her own checking account, and Daddy's not going to be there to deposit money. So we would then teach Debbie... Um, whether blind or low vision, how to keep a check register, how to deposit money, how to reconcile that checkbook, and that would be on her action plan. And on that action plan, it was, okay, so what is little Debbie going to do? Well, she's going to learn how to have a checking account. Okay, who's going to be responsible for making sure that that happens? Well, that's going to be Kevin, that's going to be Sam, that's going to be Judy. 
uh, and Debbie herself. Well, okay, when, by when is this action, this particular thing going to be completed? And we would have a completion date. And then there'd be another thing. Little Debbie had never done her laundry. And so, you know, it would just go on like that. And so we would have two or three things that were on an action plan. And I'm just thinking, it, you, because Missouri is so rural and there are, you know, lots of places around, I was just wondering, wouldn't it be neat if we could somehow collaborate around the country and do regional types of school-to-work weekends where maybe Missouri, Illinois, Kansas, and whatever else is close could do something like that where we would do that so that we would then be able to work with students so that our students would then be better prepared for that transition from um, high school on to, to college or wherever they went. So I'd be interested about your thoughts there and then I'll, I'll say one other thing and then pass it on and so I don't keep talking because somebody's yelling at me going, okay, Judy. <laughs> so just thought I'd pass that along. Um, in any case, one of the things I think that we don't do a good job of in this field is adjustment to blindness, and it really breaks my heart. I have happened, I've been in this biz for about 30 years, and I've worked with them from the womb to the tomb, as I like to say. And one of the things that I notice over and over from every, at, at all population levels, is that um, people just don't know how to deal with vision loss. Um, and it's just... It is just a really, really sad thing. And if I cared, if I understood research enough, I would get my PhD in adjustment to blindness and do some writing because I think it's a place that we really need to hang our hats on for some time. Dean Tuttle did some wonderful work there, but unfortunately his work is over 40 years old. And I think we need to look at that. So I'd be interested to hear y'all's thoughts about all that I've said. Thank you. And I apologize for taking so long. So Judy is finished now. <laughs> any, any responses? I think I, uh, I can speak. Well, first of all, I think your first idea of the cross-state uh, sharing is a great one, and I, that's why I appreciate being part of this process. And I think the more these conferences and conventions can happen so that we can share our ideas and our our uh, experiences and then offer them uh, to students would be a fantastic idea. Um, as far as the adjustment to blindness, I have a couple of comments. One is that what's been interesting for me is over the last couple of years working with the uh, adults that I'm working with who are who were labeled um, for whatever reasons uh, as chronically unemployed. They had had years and years or months at least hard time finding employment and then working with the youth. Um, and what I have found in that experience, um, and again, I have limited uh, amount of people that I've worked with, but uh, the adults that I've been working with, the adjustment to their vision loss has been much more acute. Um, they just, um, they either were in a, a profession and um, their vision loss has them changing professions or deciding to go a different direction. Um, and, uh, so I, I, in my experience working on these two different programs, I have found that the people that I'm working with who are adults have, have struggled more with their vision loss and what that means for their jobs um, than I have, I have observed with the students. Um, but that said, I'll give an example of one 
one of the um, young guys that we've been working with and th that ha relates to uh, his vision loss and he and why this type of program I think is so important. So when we first met him, he had one occupation that he wanted to do. He wanted to be a police officer. He had nothing else. What else do you want to do? Nothing. That was the only thing that he wanted to do. Unfortunately, he didn't have a big support system in the family, but his mother reiterated, uh, I believe, in the initial interview that, no, he's always talked about that's what he wanted to do. Well, um, so we took him for a tour of a police station and had a conversation, and we happened to know that there are, we try to say that, you know, uh, kids can do whatever they set their minds to. Well, the reality is someone who's legally blind in Massachusetts cannot be a police officer. So instead of discouraging him, we introduced him to police uh, the police station uh, to see what other jobs in you know policing he could possibly do. We introduced him to dispatchers. We introduced him to other people who work in kind of the um, you know the uh, community um, uh, policing. He wasn't interested in any of that. We have a picture of him sitting in the police car. That's what he had in his mind is what he wanted to do. It took us several months, and I think this. I think sometimes it, you're just as successful when you help someone understand that that one thing is not the only thing and you can't do that one thing. Um, we had a, a state police officer actually sat down and talked to him about other options. So then we introduced him to all these other criminal justice uh, occupations that maybe would be interesting. We brought them, you know, so this all drives when there's an interest in one student, we take the whole um, um, uh, tour uh, with no, numerous students. So we went to a courthouse, we went to a law office to look at paralegals, we went to a congressman's office in thinking that his interest was really in the criminal justice field. Finally, when we peeled it all back and he still didn't really express any interest in those, he finally, that was, he, he was the person who read his college essay about why he was not going to be a police officer. Um, when we peeled it back, did the strong interest inventory with them, found really high on community service, I, you know, just asked him and counsel, you know, counseling him, what is it about being a police officer that really entices you? What, why is it you want to do that? And he told us a story about a police officer who was so helpful to him. So he, the bottom line is he wanted to be in a helping profession. So we got him into doing community service at a, a food pantry. This summer he's going to be doing a, a, a program where he's going to be, his internship is going to be to help uh, do a, pro, uh, a, a training program. So I, all that's to say, sometimes you, you try to say to a student that they can do anything, but in reality there are some jobs that he could not do, and we had to peel back the onion several layers to get at what he really wanted to do. And so now he's not discouraged that he can't be a police officer, now he's looking at uh, going into school for social work. Cool. Right. Anybody else want to yes. comment? We have, we have four hands up, and I'm going to get to you guys in order. I saw your hands. Great. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'll make this quick. Um, for each of you, um, what percentage of the students that you deal with have additional disabilities in addition to blindness? This is Kevin, that's a fantastic question. It was in my notes. Um, in our program, um, this summer, there were only three students who uh, 
had visual impairment as their only disabling condition. And I would say in my school district, my full-time job, my other full-time job, uh, I would say that there is probably about 20% of the kids where their visual impairment uh, disability only. And in the vast majority, I, I would say probably 50% of our kids have a cortical visual impairment and severe multiple disabilities. Sure, cortical visual impairment, also known as cerebral. Oh, it, probably close to half of the kids. And, and to the extent that they probably won't seek or um, gain or maintain competitive employment. And this is Sam, and we do are finding that we have a higher percentage of students that have multiple disabilities, whether that's deaf blindness or hearing loss in addition to their vision loss or blindness or other multiple disabilities that are going to be barriers and obstacles as they're considering what life is going to look like post-secondary um, and what that means for them um, for independence and employability. Hi, this is Lori Scharf. Um, I um, want to ask how I really love the fact that you do a final report and that the school district gets that. Um, I want to know, like, how you were able to do that. Um, in New York, we have our districts are, are very small, um, and they serve a specific geographic area. And the Commission for the Blind, um, hence our rehab system, does not interface typically with the educational system. And I think that's partly because they're under um, Office of Family and Children's Services and not under education like our other disabilities. Um, but we have a real problem. There's no communication. And the educational system, you know, as we just pointed out from the numbers that you all illustrated with, um, most of those kids have other disabilities and their other disabilities are getting addressed and the blindness is falling by the wayside. And I think everybody in this room really needs to work on, myself included, promoting the blindness being included. Um, but I want to just find out how, um, how you guys were able to get those reports into the hands of the school districts. HIPAA and the Personal Privacy Act can be your friend or your foe. Um, for us, we have signed releases, so it allows us to communicate with everybody openly as much or as little. Um, and for example, with um, rehab services, we often meet with and collaborate with those guys. So uh, for us, it, it makes it pretty easy. Um, I think most school districts are the same way. With rehab, um, having much more of a presence and a concerted effort, in my opinion, to get to the meetings, they're there. They're an active member of that IEP team, and it opens the door for ongoing communication, and they're doing a better job teaching advocacy to the parents. Yes, we have one more question. Hi, uh, my name is Vivian Younger. I didn't have a question, but I have a couple of comments. Um, I actually had the privilege of being able to um, create um, and also to direct a program for kids K through 12. And it was, I made it an educational, recreational, and social program because I felt that Children um, being in that situation, um, they'd know all their academic skills, but they didn't have the other skills. 
And one of the components that I had in that was a time for the children to share about their vision loss and how different aspects during five days a week, this was a Saturday program, um, what kind of concerns that they had. And I'm going to tell you that although I insisted that, for example, if kids were Braille users, that they would learn how to type, that this is way back, you know, this is some years ago, of course, and the children who um, that um, had progressive sight loss but learned at least grade one Braille, those types of things to pre- prepare them for, um, you know, eventually uh, learning Braille in different aspects in that way. But what was the most important one that I found that they needed the most was to be able to discuss their vision loss and how it affected them on the playground and in school and and with their parents, and they were, they were very open to that. So fast forwarding now to 2018, I think it would be really um, good if somehow uh, telephonic types of discussion could be done and open to kids so that they have an opportunity, let's say a topic-driven type of situation, and to be able to just talk. Nothing to do with... Uh, it's just, you know, to allow them to facilitate such that it's, it's organized and such. But that was so important, and I just wanted to let you know that that's, that, that's what I think helped. Um, and then my, I guess I do have a question. So, okay, you have a child that was in public school, and, and that was it from day one. Then you have a child that's in a resource program, but they are participating in a public school setting, but they do have a, the resource room to go to. And then you have the, the kids that are in school for the blind. What I've observed is that the kids in school for the blind often didn't have the social skills uh, in order to, and the soft skills. Uh, they, they were so immersed into blindness that that was the other side of it, you know. They didn't have as much exposure to everyday, you know, types of activities. So my bottom line is I think that as long as we find out about uh, kids and adults and make sure that their life is balanced, then I think that's what's going to be the best for them. Here you go. Great, thank you. Any other questions? I don't see any. Very good. All right. Well, thank you very, very much, panelists. Uh, did a wonderful job. Um, and hopefully, um, I have your contact information uh, in case I get uh, in case I get requests for it from other folks. Because I know that on our on our uh, rehab calls, we've had people sort of feeling like they were floundering around a little bit. So, uh, if I may. Uh, uh, use you guys as a resource. Uh, I think that would be wonderful. Um, so now we have. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna switch over a little bit early, uh, which probably uh, Adele will appreciate because uh, she was asked to talk about the um, uh, the the work that the National Re- Research and Training Center at Mississippi State University has available, the, the, the research that they're doing and the products that they have available. And we asked her to talk all about all of that in 15 minutes. And uh, I'm sure she uh, would be willing to do a couple minutes more than that. Um, 
So um, if we can if we can transition uh, panelists, if you can uh, if you want to stick around, please uh, feel free to to have a seat. And uh, Adele, if you could come up, and um, and thank you very 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 much. Kevin, if I could have the, the, the mic. good, okay. Which would you prefer, the the one that's in the stand or the... Or the... Either way. I kind of like the Oprah thing holding it in my hand. Okay, very good. <laughs> so um, I guess that was kind of an introduction. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> uh, I understand that there's a, another person by the name of Adele, and she she's kind of helped me out with my name. People used to mispronounce it a lot, but now people just ask me if I can sing, and I say, Hello. <laughs> Anyway, my name is Adele Crudden. I am from the National Research and Training Center on Blindness and Low Vision at Mississippi State. And I do see some familiar faces in the audience, both people I've worked with in the past and some of you that have stopped by our booth, which we really appreciate. It's number 27 if you want to go by. But for those of you who are not familiar with it, the National Research and Training Center on Blindness and Low Vision, we just usually say the NRTC. Some people say, oh, Mississippi State, that's how they know us from our affiliation with the university, has been in existence for 36 years. And our mission is to enhance employment and independent living outcomes for people who are blind or visually impaired. And we do research, training, education, and dissemination. And it is federally funded. Um, but our work really would not be possible without doing it in collaboration with other groups and other people. Obviously, if you're going to do research, you have to have organizations and people that you collect data from. And then you have to know what do people want to know about. So the topics we we typically derive from our work with other organizations and other groups. So we do have a national advisory board, and ACB does have a representative on that board who is appointed by the president. If you have ideas for research projects that you would want us to look at, you're welcome to contact us directly or to go through your representative um, I'm sure he'd be happy to help. I think he, I don't want to call him out. I think he just stepped out for a minute. Maybe he'll be back in a second and he'll wave his hand and introduce himself. Um, but our work would not be possible with all, without these collaborative efforts. So in addition to ACB, we work with HKNC, Blinded Veterans, um, the National Council of State Agencies for the Blind, a whole bunch of different groups who make recommendations and give feedback to us about our projects. But in addition to our project partners, we really rely on individual volunteers. Sometimes those volunteers are state rehab counselors. Sometimes those volunteers are people who are blind or visually impaired. Sometimes those volunteers are parents. Sometimes they're teachers. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about our projects and you'll see what I mean. Um, we are currently almost right smack dab in the middle of our current five-year cycle. Like I said, we are funded through federal funding from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. It is a competitive grant, 
So every five years, we write a proposal, and we compete with other universities and other groups over who gets this money. Sometimes Nidler is very specific about what they want us to investigate. Other times, they give us a little bit more flexibility. So we are always trying to keep our ear to the ground to see what people want us to look at. Right now, we're looking at six different projects, and I hope you're going to be pretty interested in some of these. One is we are in the process of developing an app to help the parents of youth who are blind or visually impaired or youth who are deafblind and also um, are getting ready to transition into employment and independent living. And we are recruiting for beta testing to begin in 2019. So we need some youth to work with us, and really we need some parents of younger children to work with us to test that app out. We're also uh, doing evaluation of a guided job search intervention as part of a summer work experience program for youth. We found a transition program that was already going on in the summer where they were placing the youth into jobs. And what we've done is provide more intensive training to those youth about how to find a job. And then we're trying to get those youth to go look for a job instead of being placed by the agencies. We're also doing evaluation of approaches to a first meeting between VR professionals and employers. So we're working with a few state agencies to train their rehab counselors about different ways to approach businesses and then asking them to go out and meet with employers to see how that first meeting goes. We're looking at evaluation of the effectiveness of an evidence-based approach to business relations training for VR counselors. Again, trying to make VR counselors, trying to figure out what makes them effective at, at facilitating placement options. We're also collecting data to... Um, get information about job retention and advancement for individuals who are blind or visually impaired. We have a brief article on our website entitled, Blind People Can't Perform This Job or Can They? And it describes a little bit about research on the attitudes of hiring managers towards individuals who are blind or visually impaired and how those attitudes are impacted by knowledge and how people who are blind or visually impaired can complete workplace tasks. So it's kind of an educational thing for employers about how to do it. We are also in the process of developing a survey about job retention and career advancement. And I've talked to several people at our booth about signing up to participate in our research projects. And when I tell them that's one of the topics, I've had so many people tell me, oh, well, I wouldn't be eligible for that because X, Y, Z. Okay, it's to investigate this issue. So in addition to talking to people who have been successful in job retention and career advancement, we would also like to survey people who have not been successful because we want to look at not only what are the things that lead people to success, but what the barriers are. So how our participant registry typically works for people who might be interested in participating in our research projects 
is we have a little link that you just click on and you put in your contact information. And then when we have a project where we need input from people, we send you an email or we call you and we say, we're going to do a project about this. And this is what you would have to do. Are you interested in participating? So just signing up for our projects doesn't obligate you to anything. You can pick and choose which ones you decide to participate in, depending on your interest or maybe the time you have available. Some of them are just fill out a survey online or by telephone, and that's it. Some of them are more intensive, like talking on the phone three or four times, you know, for 45 minutes at a stretch, providing more detailed information about what your story is. So it just depends on the project, what we ask you to do. But just signing up doesn't obligate you to do it. You can pick and choose among the various projects. Of course, we always want as much participation as possible because there's a, there's a lot of research about blindness and visual impairment, but many of it does not include the consumer voice. And so it's very important for consumers to make their voices heard. So especially all of you who are doing service delivery, if you can push that message out to all the people that you work with and ask them to participate, it really helps it go better. Let's see how am I doing for time? Um, oh, that's a good question. Let me see if I have it written down. I tell you what, I have um, brochures in both print and braille that I can hand out when I finish talking if you just wave your hand. Is that okay? You can take it with you. Or if you want to give me your business card when I go back, I'll push a, something to you and you can just respond to it, whichever you prefer. The last project we're doing in this cycle is looking at existing data about people who have both vision and hearing loss and doing some investigation of that based on already existing data. And the same thing with people who um, have had traumatic brain injury and also vision loss. We're also doing some projects on um, WIOA legislation. And we have several reports on our website already about the impact of that legislation. So that's one set of projects that we're working on. We also, uh, yeah, that's like six research projects that's part of that Nidler funded grant. We also have a five-year grant from the Rehabilitation Services Administration. It's called the OIB TAC, Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center. And it's designed to provide support to agencies providing services to the Older Blind Program. So it's information about administration, operation, and performance. And we do a whole list of activities associated with that. I hope I'm not going to lose my voice. I took an allergy pill while I was sitting there waiting. Um, one is we do intensive training and technical assistance to the state agencies. So if a state OIB program wants some help improving efficiency or service delivery in their OIB program, they can sign up with us and we send, we talk to them about what their needs are. We have some in-house people and we also hire consultants to meet with them to meet their individual needs to help them improve their OIB program. 
We also provide online distance educational opportunities for administrators and service delivery personnel in the OIB programs at no cost. In fact, if any of you um, need CE hours, you should most definitely visit our website because we have a multitude of training opportunities available free of charge where you can get continuing ed units. We also have an older individuals who are blind collaborative. And so as part of that collaborative, we have a special aging track at the AFB Leadership Conference. We have some additional training opportunities through the Helen Keller National Center and through Hadley. We have a listserv associated with it. And we just have a lot of opportunities for people in the OIB programs to network because what we're finding is that, you know, the funding on those programs is so slim. A lot of those people can't travel or go to conferences, and they're very isolated in their service delivery. And then we have a community of practice, which is an interactive learning community, and it's for OIB consumers and professionals to share information and talk about resources and curricula. And all you have to do is go to our website. You can access a toolbox of information. We've recently uh, published a document called Best Practices in the Administration of the OIB Program that gives kind of some guidelines that are aspirational for operating OIB programs. So we do have three websites uh, our main website has a number of products and resources, links to our peer-reviewed publications, information about our research projects and our outcomes. We have another one, the National Technical Assistance Center on Blindness and Visual Impairment that has information for businesses, service providers, people with vision loss, and their families. Um, again, lots of continuing education associated with that, ACVREP, CRC, NPBCB, all kind of good letters, soup in there for you to get your CE opportunities. And then we have a third website for the OIB TAC programs. So we have lots of free products, lots of resources. Everything we produce is available free of charge. Um, our next quarterly newsletter has just been written, so if you go to our website, you can go to our homepage and read it. You can go to our website and look at it. Uh, but one thing I want to make sure and mention is we've got two and a half years left on our current research projects. In spring of 2020, we will be competing again with other entities about to see who's going to get the money again to research blindness and low vision for the next five years. We very much want to know what you think are the most pressing issues in the field. So you can go to our website and contact us and give us your thoughts. Now, earlier people were talking about transportation, so I just want to give you a heads up that our last five-year project, we, we did a very intensive project on transportation. If you go to our website, there is a transportation guide that we just updated and re-released. I think we did that in May. Um, we did a series of projects about transportation. There's a transportation plan on there, and we really found that there are a lot of options for transportation that people don't think of. You know, it's very stressful to think of 
transportation for yourself. It really helps if you have somebody to discuss and network with and really try and think out of the box. So there might be some support information for you there that you'd be interested in looking at. We also have information about um, a transition curriculum we developed that's all online that you can pull all or part of it and use. And again, all this is available free of charge. So I think I'm out of time, but... Yeah, I think that's. I think that is about it. You, you said you you don't have the website. I have it in Braille and print, and if people just want to raise their hands, I'll walk by and drop it off for them. All right, that seems uh, probably like a good transition, unless there's uh, a quick question. You want me to bring the mic? Please. Now I really do feel like Oprah. Well, while, while Adele is doing that, I'm going to thank uh, Teresa and Kevin and um, Samantha once more for, uh, for being our panelists and coming in. Uh, me, honey. Thank you. Teresa came in from Jefferson City, and she's going right back. So uh, I hope all the panel will stay for just one moment for my question. My question is this. When you're looking at employment options, what is the balance between finding employment for our blind and visually impaired people in the public sector versus the private sector? And if there is a lag in the private sector, what, what might we as advocates and what might we encourage people in our own states and counties and cities to do? Thank you. Are Kevin and I, I'm not sure they're still here. Yeah, I'm here. I was oh, running good. across the room to meet Adele. Oh, good. Um, speaking to your question specifically, um, private sector, we're finding a lot of the younger kids are a little more successful in finding employment um, because it's not needing a lot of the real high tech, um, you know, real specialized areas. You know, they can find jobs in a local community that can be adapted and modified, you know, for a person that has low vision or blindness. Um, however, the barrier still remains transportation and access technology. A lot of these kids, it's great. In the school system, they get a $4,000 Braille CPU or a $6,000 Braille CPU, also known as a note taker. Um, the problem is when they leave that school through graduation, the device goes away. And, you know, I tell the kids, I call them a used car because <laughs> I'm like, I don't think your parents have six grand laying around. So we have to get really inventive and creative on how to go after some of those supports. Um, you know, I see a lot of folks in the room that have Victor Streams and, you know, some of those things are wonderful tools to have, but there's such a focus for these young kiddos on this real high tech stuff. You know, uh, I think that that can be a barrier, but it can also lead to employment. So um, I think it, it, it's a great question, but to answer it specifically, I think uh, public sector um, entry-level jobs is more successful for the younger generation. All right. Uh, Debbie and your crowd, can, do you, uh, it's time for you guys to come up and kick me out. <laughs> Adele, thank you very, very much for coming in. And, uh... Oh, if sure. You could, if... Yeah, if you would raise your hand if you would like a brochure, please, from, from the uh, NRTC. And I want to mention one other thing. If you are interested in seeing one of those comprehensive reports that I've mentioned a few times, send me an email. I will just I will pull out the name of the kid um, and send you a sample of that. Um, my, 
Yeah, my email address is soar, S-O-A-R, period, S-T, Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at gmail.com. So again, it's S-O-A-R dot S-T, Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at gmail.com. And yes, the question was, does it come to me? Yes. And I will send it to you in an accessible Microsoft Word document. Perfect. Great. My name is Debbie Grubb. I chair the ACB Special Education Task Force. And our goal, our goals for the past five years have been to be a resource for anyone in any state, county, city, community who wishes to advocate on behalf of a child who is blind or visually impaired. And since we can't travel to where you all are, we have tried to put together projects that will give you information that you can work with because our desire is for every parent, guardian, counselor to understand what the child is entitled to in their right to have a free and and appropriate public education. And in our earlier life, when Mr. Ray Campbell, who is now our officer liaison, um, began this work, we were all about trying to ensure that that schools for the blind could remain open and viable. And what we decided was we still care so deeply, which is why we are having this particular panel today about schools for the blind as a resource. And we value that, but we understand that we've got to reach out to all children and all of those advocating on their behalf. And if we can put in our arsenal how a school for the blind in their state might be an additional resource, then that gives all of us more arrows in our quiver. So that is what we are seeking to do today. And so um, we have four panelists here. Two are TVIs. I'll introduce them all in a moment. One is um, a longtime worker in in the field of of rehabilitation and now is a member of the board of the Indiana School for the Blind. And then you heard um, our, you heard, uh, we have a a social worker who works in the great state of New York and she will also be talking to you. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about these people because I want them to talk to you. So what we're going to do is open our presentation with June Link, who many of you heard sing so beautifully at our opening session, The Star-Spangled Banner. June works in both the School for the Blind and public school setting here in Missouri. And so without any further ado, we're going to um, let June say her thing, and then we will move on through our panelists and questions and discussions. And again, I appreciate you all coming. And at the end of this presentation, for those of you who are looking for your continuing education credits units, um, I will give that final code. So June, take it away. All right. I'm a little bit nervous, so just hang in there with me. I love working with students and kids, but speaking out, I have my issues when so I'm going to read what I've written I'm going to um, will not go into depth with all of it because of of time but I'm going to give you an um, 
some outlines. Um, the segment of the presentation is designed to, to provide some basic information um, regarding schools for the blind as a resource for public school-based vision programs. We will briefly discuss how public school-based TVI programs currently utilize schools for the blind as a resource and the future impact this movement might have in reference to preparing blind and vision impaired students for collegiate or vocational environments. A brief overview of a special education task force developed in Missouri to improve the academic and vocational achievement of blind and vision impaired students is also included. Okay. Uh, the Missouri School for the Blind Outreach Department. The Outreach Department of the Missouri School for the Blind um, has, the, has developed a statewide program of comprehensive services for students ages birth through 21 with uh, visual impairments and for those who are deaf blind. All services are provided at no cost to the agencies and the families. Several agencies uh, collaborate with outreach, including rehabilitation services for the blind, IMPACT, that's the Missouri um, uh, Parents Act, Delta Gamma Center, First Steps, regional and state, um, um, entity, uh, councils, I'm sorry. Uh, National Center for Deaf Blindness and St. Louis Society for the Blind, Lighthouse for the Blind, Missouri Assistive Technology. Parents and, and teachers of Missouri School for the Deaf and Missouri School for the Severely Disabled. Missouri School for the Blind's Outreach Department has six areas of um, provisions for the state of Missouri. And I will just touch on these. We have the Missouri Deaf Blind Technical Assistance Project. The purpose of the Missouri Deaf Blind Technical Assistance Project is to develop partnerships, coordinate services and networking um, provide systematic training, um, te technical assistance, training and resources, I'm sorry, and, and services, networking and resources, systematic training and technical assistance, training and resources are available for individuals with vision and hearing impairments birth through 22 years of age. Uh, their families and uh, service providers. Services are coordinated with local education agencies, adult service providers, and families to enhance networking and to build um, expertise in the community. And I'll go on here. Um, and 
one of the, uh, the recent activities. They have a Midwest Transitional Institute, and um, this is um, the the institute assists young adults 16 and older with deaf blindness to develop independent living skills and become more empowered and self-determined. The goal of the institute is to get participants excited about planning for their future and provide a taste of the college experience while um, learning about team building, leadership, self-determination, and advocacy. Um, there is a project also called Hand in Hand. This is a seven-day course on deaf blindness and the effective um, practices when uh, teaching students with combined vision and hearing loss. We have um, the Missouri School for the Blind, the Library Media Center. Uh, the MSB Library Media Center provides materials and services for students and staff at Missouri School for the Blind. The LMC has more than 20,000 Braille recorded, large print, and regular print books, and magnifiers, as well as money, I'm sorry, as, yeah, as, as well as many DVDs, music, CDs, and ebook um, records, an iPad, and magnifiers, and um, there are more, um, and many more available for, for loan. The Missouri, Missouri um, Instructional Media Resource Center for the Visually Impaired, there is there, the school. The Missouri Instructional Resource Center, uh, visually, um, visually Impaired, coordinates um, the registration of students who are legally blind and administers the federal quota funds. That is sort of important. That's why <laughs> I mentioned. Based on the recent registration, there are over you know 1,200 children in Missouri that qualify. All right. Uh, by law. The funds must be used to purchase Braille and large print text and specialized educational um, materials produced by the American Printing House for the Blind. Uh, blind. The students may be in, in public, um, parochial, or home schools and agencies statewide. MIRC assists in product and textbook availability for approximately um, 1,250 kids across the state. All right, yes. Then um, we have MOSFIN, that is the Missouri Statewide Parent Involvement Network. 
which is also an important thing with the outreach. The purpose of the Missouri Statewide Parent Involvement Network is to provide the free home-based program for families of children birth um, through, through five years of age who are visually impaired, including those with multiple disabilities and com um, combined vision and hearing challenges. Services are coordinated with local education agencies, adult services providers, and deafblind task forces um, to enhance networking and to build expertise in the community. During a, a given year, most men may serve 25 to 50 families across the state of Missouri, and um, they have empowered over 450 parents since if its inception. Okay, they also have with this outreach to pro, uh, department professional development. The Missouri School for the Blind Outreach Services offers assistance and um, technical assistance in the areas of vision, education, orientation, and mobility to all Part C providers, local education programs, and state board-operated uh, programs in Missouri. These services are intended to support programming efforts. Assessments are conducted by professionals certificated in um, their respective fields. Services are no cost to uh, the district program, which is um, important to know. Um, and they provide the programs and workshops um, in collaboration with this. It's, it's, if anyone is here, it's important to know that these are uh, at no cost. I am um, saying that um, communications and emerging language for students with combined vision and hearing loss and multiple impairments workshop is one of the important um, programs that they do offer. Um, for more information on the outreach, please see, I, I have um, pamphlets that I brought with me that I can distribute. It's www.msb.dese.mo.gov, but I have pamphlets that will um, have this on there. I would, I thought it was important because the task force is doing this to read a brief overview of a task force that I am a part of. This is the Task Force on Blind Student and Academic and Vocational Performance. And this task force um, is uh, abbreviated BTF. It was established in the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, Division of Special Education. The purpose of the BTF is to develop is to develop goals and objectives to guide the improvement of special education related services, vocational training, transition from school to work, rehabilitation services, and independent living and employment outcomes for eligible 
um, blind and vision impaired students. The BTF meets on a quarterly basis and its membership is comprised of, and I hope you all take these grassroots and some of you who um, will get in here and, and start one of this. This is comprised of representatives from the Department of um, Elementary and Secondary Education, the Department of Social Services, community, um, sorry, consumer organizations, employers, administrators, orientation and mobility specialists, teachers of blind and vision impaired students, rehabilitation counselors, institutions of higher learning, parents and blind or vision impaired students attending public schools in Missouri, and a student who is currently enrolled in a secondary public school. Um, at our meetings, uh, updates are given by DESE uh, representatives um, containing proposals designed to place more stringent um, requirements more stringent requirements on the state to make available to, um, to the public information regarding state and local report cards, the percentage and um, proficiency of assessments taken by students along with the requirements to see that teachers are appropriately certified in their grade level of instruction. Very important aspect. My task force, my greatest highlight with the BTF this year was serving on a committee to plan and assist in hosting a 2017 uh, Vision Summit, Children's Visit Vision Summit, which took place this past October in our state's capital. Um, this summit focused on effectively transitioning from school to post-secondary education, as well as providing information to students with blindness or visual impairment, um, to providing it to their parents and those who come in daily contact with them to ensure success a blind or vision impaired um, child or adult must um, possess self-confidence and the knowledge that it is respectable to be blind along with the skills and alternative techniques of daily living. The various seminars scheduled during the, the summit were designed to identify um, the opportunities and resources, services, and adaptive, adaptive technology currently available to assist the students with academic and vocational success. Um, now, for more information, I do have um, the BTF website, um, if you would like that at the end of my um, presentation. And to, in conclusion, I would like to say this has been a brief overview from me of the positive impact that Schools for the Blind can have on public, public school-based um, vision programs. The Schools for the Blind can serve as a living model and are a great place um, for teacher observation, training, and extended core curriculum. Um, they can supply information about current technology 
that is both effective and affordable. The Schools for the Blind can offer, offer, offer thank you, local and statewide outreach programs to blind children and their families, which include use of the lending library um, and provide programs designed to assist teachers of vision impaired students and, spon and sponsor contests, summer programs, and sports related activities um, and vision impaired children for vision impaired children and youth, youth across the state. The Schools for the Blind can offer classes and resource materials geared toward college preparation along with other programs uh, that prepare the blind and vision impaired student um, attending a public school to experience academic and or vocational success. Thank you. Thank you, June. I have one question for you. Yes, I'm a mom. And um, I've just had a little baby, and I've just been told that my child is blind, and you know how I'm feeling right now. So how these wonderful services in, in my home state of Missouri, how, do, how does the show me state show me? How do I get plugged into these services? How do I know about them before I, before I can get involved, say, with a parents group? How, how do you reach out to people to get to pull them into the system? That is really a good question, and sometimes it's a hard question. I'll tell you why. These programs exist, but as far as, like, with the Missouri School for the Blind, they're really not allowed to go out and publicize. We get some of these programs announced through um, places like the Society and Delta Gamma, um, these these, children, these people are allowed to get out. Also with the MCB, there are people, you, you go to these conventions and you tell people about these programs, you have the seminars there, and you have to get the, the, the word out through there. And this task force, this is another way because the teachers that belong to it, they go out into these areas, areas which are rural and let them know because it is hard. That's the basis right there. A lot of parents simply don't know. Thank you, June. We will be anxious to hear how you move forward with the solution of this problem. And I think that all you're doing will be um, a wonderful example for all of us who are interested in this to follow. We are now going to move on to our second TVI, um, whom you've already heard from in the first session. Um, our friend, Judy Jackson, who has had experience teaching in both the school systems in Texas and now in Virginia. And um, I just want her to share with you from her heart what she observes, what she sees, what she knows. Oh, nothing, you have nothing to apologize for. You're great. Oh, got it. Thank you. Hi. Um, I want to talk to you all a little bit about bridging the gap between transition and beyond, because we don't know where our students go beyond. We don't know if they're going to go to um, a, a, a vocational school, a college, if they're going to go on to be homemakers, if they're going to go. We, we don't know what they're going to do. But what I'm finding, I, I get the, the pleasure um, 
in the state of Virginia of, of wearing um, both my rehab teacher hat and my TVI hat um, because I have the great fortune to work um, for the Department for the Blind and Vision Impaired in the state of Virginia as a rehabilitation teacher. And then um, I work part-time at the Virginia School for the Deaf and Blind, both as a TVI and get to do rehab teaching as well there. So, so I get to see both worlds. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm just finding that um, we've got a lot of work to do um, with these kids with respect to making sure that they're, they're prepared. The example I gave of um, little Debbie going off to college and not knowing how to keep a checkbook, um, I, I, I wish that that were all little Debbie didn't know. In the cases that I see, little Debbie doesn't even know how to keep a budget. Little Debbie doesn't know that... Um, you can't just go to Target, and this is a real, a real, a real situation I'm going to describe for you. Little Debbie doesn't know that when you go to Target, you have to know how much money's on your debit card or how much money you have in the bank. You can, it's not just to pull off the shelf and put in the wagon and uh, or the buggy, I should say, uh, and go to the go to the to the checkout counter and voila, I get to keep all this stuff. I had a student who did exactly what I'm just describing to you all um, and got up there and had $90 worth of stuff and had zero clue about why the student, they couldn't keep what they had. Um, does anybody want to guess how old this student might have been? Y'all are, both of you, I heard 19 and I heard 21. Let's split it. 20. 20 years old. Is that not pitiful? Whose fault is that, y'all? Maybe, but, but this particular student didn't come from a good home life, so I'm not going to blame their family because they didn't come from a good home life. It's certainly not the student's fault. You know, they didn't ask to be born. They're just the learner in this situation. So residential schools and public schools have a huge responsibility to make sure that these students are prepared. I had this um, student and um, two other students were whining to me um, one night, and that's exactly what they were doing. They'd be going, Miss Jackson, um, if they were here, um, because they love to say that to me when they don't want to do what I ask them to do. Um, and these are wonderful, delightful students. They've, the, the ones that I'm talking about have just all stolen my heart um, because they each in their own way really have some wonderful strengths. Um, they just have to be tapped. Um, but anyway, these three students individually came whining to me this summer. We're going to be so bored this summer. We don't know what we're going to do. We don't want to sit at home. And th- there's a, a program in Virginia at the rehab center that's called the LIFE program. And I've not seen what the LIFE program does, but apparently it is a bomb.com kind of program because these kids loved it. But they have a rule that says that once you've attended it once, 
you know, you're done. It's one and done. But there is another program that they do with one of the universities, uh, uh, Virginia uh, Commonwealth, Commonwealth of Virginia University, VCU. Um, and they partner with um, the Department for the Blind um, and Vision Impaired and the Rehab Center. VCU partners with them. And um, so it's kind of like a, like a college prep, but in fact, what the students get to do, it's called LEAP. Uh, so let me go back. It's called LEAP, and it's um, learning, education, academics. Um, I, I can't remember what the P program may be. Um, but anyway, but these, what these students get to do during the, during the week is they take classes at VCU and um, Monday through Thursday. And then on Friday, they're at the center, and they're able to hone in on their skills like technology, Braille, uh, home and personal management, those kinds of things. So they have one day a week uh, to do that, and then, and then they're at VCU the rest of the week. But what you have to do is you have to have some pretty savvy technological skills because it is a college class. Now, what they, they were pretty ingenious when they thought of this particular um, program because what they do with the students, and, and Debbie, keep me time conscious. Um, so what they, what they do... Um, with, with this program is they get to audit the class. So they, they neither um, get a pass or fail, but it gives them a really good taste of what college is going to be like. And one of the students um, that I have wants to be a translator. This particular student is from, comes from another country and, um, you know, knows three languages and uh, wants, wants to do that, but their experiential level for things like college is, is really limited. The other student wants to be a counselor. Um, the other student wants to be a chef. But none of these students have the skills right now um, that are going to prepare them for college. And, and I lay awake sometimes, and that's really the truth, at night thinking, okay, whose responsibility is it? These kids are t all 20 and 21 years old. They have one, count it, one year of school left. We don't have a lot of time, folks. Um, and, and so Lee, I, I told them all to join LEAP when they were whining to me. I said, okay, you're all going to join LEAP. We're going to get your applications done. You're going to do this. I'm going to help you. I'm going to guide you through the process, but you're going to get it done. And it's a, it's a selection process. Um, and they whined and whined all through the thing. This is too much work. And I said, that's the problem. You're used to having everything done for you. And guess what? The show stops. And, um, but they did. They got all of their stuff done. I was so proud of all of them. They got their stuff done. And they all three got accepted. Um, and, and what it's going to do is it's going to be a real eye-opener for them. But we have um, so much to work on. And, and we just really do have to bridge that gap. One of, the, one of the, the pitfalls that we face, particularly in residential schools, and um, my um, good friends up here um, got to hear me whine a lot about this um, in, our, in, in our personal conversations, because we have to train residential staff to be teachers, not just babysitters. 
Um, and that's, that's, that's a real um, drawback that I see. You know, when, when we all went to school, I, I went to a school for the blind for part of my education, not much of it, but I certainly went there in the summers, and I'm grateful for that because I was able to get the things in the summers that I wasn't able to get in the school year. Um, and but we were what I like to call vanilla blind, and so you know we we learn those skills. But what happens now because because we started saving babies, which I think is a great thing. Um, along you know back in the late seventies, early eighties, we started saving little ones, um, and so um, you know cognition sometimes. Um, there are deficits in cognition. There are deficits in emotional makeup. There are deficits, you know, in many areas um, besides um, cognition and besides um, blindness or low vision. Um, and so what happens in our residential schools, or at least what I'm seeing is happening, is that those students are babysat. And, oh, here, little Debbie, let me serve your food for you. Oh, here, um, let me do X, Y, Z. And if you learn it, oh, well, that's good. Um, And if you don't, oh, well, you know, I still have my paycheck and sorry for your luck. But you see, we have to teach residential staff that incidental learning doesn't happen for our blind and low vision kids. It doesn't happen for anybody who has vision loss. If you've had vision loss later in life, yeah, you've had a lot of incidental learning. But if there are things that you're new to and you don't have vision now, you're not going to learn it incidentally. Um, And so, you know, I just, I want to conclude because I want to give Lori and Don certainly their their time and I don't want to take up all the time. But there's just so much that we have to do. And I, I hope that you'll go back to your states and work with your schools uh, for the blind. Work with your um, public schools. If you um, have time to go in and volunteer and work with your TVIs, find out how you can help. You know, you're, you all have, all of us have skills and um, things that we can do to help um, and bring those students forward so that instead of being um, on our social security rolls, they'll be on our tax rolls, and IRS will be calling them, asking them where their tax return is. You know, um, I just think it's so, so important that we raise responsible adults. And with that, I'll conclude my comments. I'll, any questions? Any questions, anybody? Is there anybody? Hi, Sharon. She's coming. I'm taking yours, Debbie. That's fine, Debbie. Thank you. We're getting there. There you go. Thank you. To add to what Judy has said, um, I noticed that it's very hard for some students who've been in residential school to take the initiative at all because their day is so structured. And um, they feel empowered in that that environment, but the reality is they can't even book a movie for themselves or book a ride. 
Yeah. And uh, that's what I notice, yeah, you're let right. alone the academics. You're, you're right. You're exactly right. We just, these kids just don't have any clue. Um, I had a student cry. Um, Miss Jackson, don't be mad at me because this student, they're, they're, they're also very lazy because they, they've ado- adopted the mentality that society says, let me do to you and for you. And they just think anything that they have to do for themselves is just, I mean, don't you know, we're royalty. After all, we're blind. And I never got that memo. Did y'all? No. I was told I was a royal Okay. Oh, where'd the mic go? Right here's, here. here's this one. Let me have that one a minute. Okay. There you go. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm sorry. Here, here, okay. <laughs> Thank you again. I appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you all. And um, I've got to run on, but thank you. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to, um, because of time, we're going to have Don Coors, who has a long history in the blindness movement in his state and, of course, a long history in the American Council of Blind. And his presentation will be a bit different. And so we're going to let him speak to us now. And then we're going to have um, one of my favorite people in the whole world in the blindness biz, Lori Scharf, do some cleanup for us and kind of put all of this together in some sort of a context that we can get our arms around. So, Don, it is now your turn. Where are you exactly? There you go. I'm Don Coors, and I'm from the state of Indiana. And let me just say to you that I'm a graduate of the Indiana School for the Blind and served in rehab for 41 and a half years before retirement. The School for the Blind is an independent agency within state government. It is under the governor's office. It has a board of seven individuals who are appointed by the governor representing various factors within the public sector. I happen to be on the school board since 2002 as a representative of the Alumni Association. There are seven voting members and three non-voting members, one from the Department of Education, one from the legislative branch, and one from the administrative branch. Um, So it reports directly to the governor's office, not to the Department of Education, which is probably different than in many states. Current enrollment is about 150 students who are full-time students. Some of the students at the high school level do participate in academic programs at a nearby public high school which is less than two miles from campus. The school also, for several years now, has offered short course uh, curriculum for students from public school systems. Uh, The short course program is primarily to give them the opportunity to uh, expand on their expanded core curriculum uh, credentials But at the same time, they are carrying on their regular academic coursework at the local level, and the School for the Blind has teachers to assist them, but their academic grades are actually uh, given at the local school system. For, For many years now, the school has offered 
a transition program for both students at ISBVI as well as anybody throughout the state. They also have a working relationship with Bosma Enterprises, which is a not-for-profit corporation within Indianapolis. And some of the students who are not academic students do participate in some work activity as part of their school curriculum. Also, during the summertime, the School for the Blind and Bosma Enterprise offers a STEP program, which is available to any student throughout the state of Indiana. School for the Blind also has a summer program, which is an expanded core curriculum, um, which is available also to any student throughout the state. Sometimes the school, based on funding, has also made available other types of supportive programs, academic programs, to enhance students who need extra help in various core curriculums. One of the, one of the great challenges, I think, in most states is an adequate supply of trained teachers. So the Indiana School for the Blind for several years now has been serving as a direct provider of direct services. This year, the school's providing direct services to 286 students from 49 school corporations. So they have contracts to provide direct services to all those students. They also are involved in step, first step programs and one of the other things that may be different in Indiana, but I don't know this, there is a state statute that says that any doctor who sees a person who's legally blind is to, is to report them to a registry of blind individuals. And so those individuals who are under 21 are referred to the Indiana School for the Blind, and they do have individuals on staff who go out and visit those families and provide assistance to them. <clears throat> School for the Blind also serves as the uh, educational resource center for students not only at School for the Blind but throughout the state and as part of that project the uh, Department of Education funded a large print and braille transcribing unit at the Miami Correctional Institution, which is a state correctional institution that provides transcribed material, books and tests and everything. And I can tell you that the quality of their work is as good as any other organization throughout the nation. Um, the other thing that because of the shortage of teachers, uh, both at the School for the Blind as far as training as TBIs, um, the Department of Education has funded training programs so that if they if have a provisional license to teach visually impaired students, they must participate in this program, and the, the cost of the program is no cost to the teachers, so that does allow them 
to become prepared and, and to be qualified to be certified as VI teachers. So, you know, in, in general, I, I think that one of the things that Schools for the Blind uh, can do is I think they can serve as specialists throughout the states uh, to serve those students who choose or the family chooses to educate them at the local level. I would say to you one of the experiences that the School for the Blind has had that some of the students who come in at the secondary level for a short course realize that they've missed a lot at the local level. So there is an influx of older students seeking assignment to the Indiana School for the Blind. The other thing that I think has been a tremendous help for the, at least the School for the Blind in Indiana, some 30 years ago, the administration decided that it was appropriate to establish an uh, Indiana Blind Children's Foundation, which is a not-for-profit 501c3, and it has been a great resource to help the school meet some of its added expenses when state funding is short, and yet uh, they, the state can't control how the foundation spends their money. The other thing that uh, the administration did several years ago, they petitioned the Lions Clubs to become a statewide project. And so the School for the Blind for now, for several years, has been approved as a statewide Lions project. So the Lions Club uh, is a great supporter of the school, uh, both financially as well as from a political point of view. And uh, they actually do uh, work assignments every three months at the School for the Blind to just do general maintenance and upkeep. But So that gives you a little bit of idea of how Indiana is structured. But I think one of the successes of Schools for the Blind to continue to exist they're going to have to be very involved and be consultants to local school corporations because as long as we have shortage of professionals who are trained for all the local school systems, they're going to lack adequate resources. So that's my comments. Thank you, Don. Thank you very much. Um, does anybody, I want to turn the mic over to Lori um, to kind of help us pull all this together, but before, um, does anybody have a speci specific question for Don? Okay, we're going to let Lori do her thing and um, we'll kind of wrap this up hopefully in a positive way with a direction to move forward. Lori, you can either use the mic and the thing or um, this one. Pass me that one. There you go. Fine. I'm back here enjoying Debbie's dog. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I used to have a golden, and, but anyway. Um, so be, earlier, June had mentioned about, uh, with regards to early intervention, that the schools can't, this um, Missouri School for the Blind can't do outreach in that area. I'm from New York, as Debbie had said, and we had a blind governor. Some of you may remember the Saturday Night Live skit. Um, anyway... When he was in office, one of the 
bills that he vetoed was a bill that a bill that would have required that we have in New York we call them 4201 schools which is the state educational law that pertains to providing services to children uh, with severe what they consider severe disabilities so we have three schools for the blind in New York two of them provide academic curriculum and one of them does not um, so there was a law that uh, a bill I'm sorry that was on the governor's desk and it was going to make it a requirement that the New York State School for the Blind, which is our state school, the other two were private, um, that their material would go into the packet that every parent receives regarding available schools for their child who, who were blind. And he vetoed it. And we were like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not promoting the sustainability. But um, I think, you know, some of that may have been his own denying of his blindness. Um, they blamed it on state. The state can't be pushing their own program. So if you know that your state school needs, you know, is, is having trouble with numbers when you're out in the community doing your own outreach, whether it be for ACB, just... You know, professionally, you meet with people. Um, always try to mention there is a school for the blind. Very often, they do have outreach resources. Very often, they are the point contact for the quota funds for that state. Um, you know, the other thing that I wanted to talk about was um, sometimes, and people will probably shoot me for saying this, but the blind children grow up with an entitlement attitude with the silver spoon in their mouth and they don't think it ever gets removed. Um, and honestly, I think that comes along with all these... I, I loved the presentation of the colors last night. However, you know, think about what your name is. Why are they special? They're not special. They're just children. Um, you know, the, uh, those of you who weren't at general session, it was a Boy Scout troop who uh, the children all had special needs. I cringe at that term because the term special means that something is a higher level than someone else. Our children are no more special than anyone else. They're disabled. They're people. Um, and that type of thing needs to be instilled in the families. And when we go in as blind role models or professionals working with the family, those are the things that I challenge. You know, if that child was sighted, would you be letting that child climb up on that couch with the shoes on? Oh, no. Well, then why are you letting your blind child do it? And then it might pop the kid's shoes off and say, look, it's a better, better sensory experience if the shoes are off. You flip it. So it's not that they're doing it wrong. You're just giving them an alternate way. Um, you know. But it doesn't mean the child should be on the furniture, no matter who they are, necessarily. Um, also, regarding um, incidental learning, so important. 
And that is not something people understand. And I say to the families of kids who are deafblind, when you talk to Siri or the, you know, Google, the uh, Google version or whatever it is, and it doesn't get what you say, that's what your child's hearing. You know, it's, it's, and they all go, oh, I never thought of that. But it's, a, it's an analogy that they can relate to. Um, you know, with, with a blind kid, when Judy's example earlier, mom always went to the store and just piled it in the cart. The kid has no value. Ask kids if they know what, that there's signs on the, you know, shelf that say that some item's on the sale. They don't know about that. Unless you tell them. They're not going to, even the, even the, even your low vision kids, they're there. But let me tell you, unless they really focus on it, no matter who they are, they're not going to see it. It's just clutter to a lot of them, especially our kids with CVI. Um, a couple of, I guess it was a month ago that AFB had their call on cortical visual impairment. And one of the people made a really good statement about... Um, how when she learned how her child was able to, how her child perceived things who had a cortical visual impairment, it totally changed her ability to interact with a kid. The more we understand as professionals and as peers in the field of blindness, the better we can help parents relate to their children. And ACB should be going after partnerships with organizations, think about it. All of the developmental disabilities and autism spectrum organizations get great money to provide peer support, to provide socialization skills. We all have to help our families get these types of services put in their IEPs because that's where they belong. The earlier we start it, the easier it is. You know, the, the first time I really met a group of blind adults was when I went to guide dog school. And I stood there and I cried and my mother said, oh, get inside in two days you'll have your dog. <laughs> and she left me there and I remember thinking, I don't like this. These people are all older than me, and except for my roommate, and she was fairly newly blind, and she had a, a really just, I, I didn't like the way her mother treated her. She spoke down to her, and that really bothered me. But, you know, we have to help these kids become who they are and challenge them. Because a lot of people won't. They'll say, oh, that's a blind kid. You know, they don't break unless you drop them real hard. Just like a sighted kid. <laughs> don't handle them with kid gloves. Let their parents challenge them. Help them explore. You know, I remember getting caught climbing the back fence because somebody said there was a ball on the shed that abutted our fence. I was going to go find that ball. Well, I got up to the top of the six-foot fence and then realized, wow, this roof is sloped. This is pretty cool. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> I didn't break anything. I also didn't go very far, but it was, ex- it was my experiential learning. You know, it was figuring out, you know, the Lego roofs you put on that are sloped. This is like the real thing. But that's the experiential type of stuff that kids need to be taught. And you know what? Parents don't have time to teach it. And they don't know how. So have your mobility instructors get out there and get in the dirt with them and, you know, explore. Learn things. Figure out, you know, what is, what is the manhole cover in the, in the middle of the street really feel like? What is that? Does the kid know? No. Let him feel it. Take him to a place where there's not cars zooming down the street, obviously. But, you know, when, when you hit it with your cane, what is it? Is it something to avoid? Or is it something to walk across? It's all experiences. But until you, think, until you actually put a kid in that situation and help them process it, the lack of input is not the problem. It's the, avil- the inability to process what they're not getting because they don't know. And that's it. Thank you. Before we, um, before I give you the code and we bid each other adieu and we are all going back to where we live, work and play with renewed zeal. There's a lot to do for our children who are blind and visually impaired, whether they're still in K through 12 or whether they're going through employment preparedness or whatever was said here today, these are kids and they need us. And we all can't do everything, but maybe there's one thing each of us can do for one, two, or three kids. And I think that we have to choose that thing and say, I think I could do that. You know, maybe, maybe meet with parents. I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to put the ideas in your head. But I think we see that there's a lot of potential, a lot of possibility, but there's also a lot of lost potential and a lot of lost possibility. Yes. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do is let Ray have the... F- make a couple comments as the first chair of the task force and as our officer liaison. But before I do that, does anybody have a burning question or comment, not too long, but that you would like to ask or make? Okay, then we're going to turn the mic over to Ray. Um, can we, Ray, can you, how can we do this? Can you come up to the podium? Um, as uh, officer liaison to this task force, first and, for, first and foremost, um, I'm very proud of this task force and the work that they did on this program. I think we should give them all a round of applause. <laughs> Second of all, we know as a task force that there's work to do, but we need your help as people in this room and in all other parts of ACB, what are the kinds of things that you need this task force to put its energy towards that are going to help you and your state affiliates and ultimately children who are blind or visually impaired and parents out there? 
those. So please, if you have ideas or you know, are willing to put something together for us or you know, have thoughts on things we could do, reach out to Debbie, uh, and she can uh, certainly be of, uh, you know, take, bring those ideas back to us and, and, uh, and uh, move forward. And just the, the last thing I would say, Lori, you're so right about the experiential learning that one of the greatest things that my dad did for me was let me help him tear up and remodel uh, rooms in our house, smack my finger with a hammer and do it just like anybody else. But boy, I sure learned a lot. And I'm sure I know Larry can appreciate that as well. So anyway, thank you everyone for attending and supporting the work of this task force. It's really important because this is about our future. And please reach out to Debbie if you have any ideas or me, if you've got any ideas for the task force going forward. Thank you very much. Now let Debbie give you the code. You know, guys, I hate to tell you how old I was when I learned the right way to open a bag of potato chips. And I was, I was on the honor roll in my school, you know, but I hadn't had the experiential learning. And I thought you ripped the little thing across. Nobody told me you put one part of the bag in one hand, one part of the bag in the other hand, and you pull it apart. And somebody showed me that. I'm oh, you know, and, and I did not know. I heard a rip. I didn't know. So now we're going to give you the code, and luckily it's not too long. C D seven Z A. C D seven Z A. I also want to thank all of you for coming, for buying the tickets, for coming, for being so listening. And I just, it would touch our hearts in, our, in a major way if you would come with us to us with suggestions and ideas. And if you could get home and take one or two kids and their families and help them so that you can play a part in their receiving their do right, their just right 